Hi, I'm Christopher, and welcome to Mysteries at Midnight, your destination for timeless enigmas and captivating mystery stories, narrated in the soothing style of a bedtime story. This story was first published on the Sleep Cove podcast, where millions of listeners relax their bodies and calm their minds by listening to meditations, hypnosis and classic bedtime stories. We soon realised that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place, so we present Mysteries at Midnight, where you will hear all new mystery stories every week. So here is a story that was first published on Sleep Cove. I hope you enjoy it, and please remember to subscribe. Hello and welcome to Sleep Cove, a podcast to get a good night's sleep. I hope everyone is having great night's sleeps and the last few episodes have helped you get that peace you need in these trying times. This is a sleep story episode where I will read out the beginning of the Agatha Christie tale, The Man in the Brown Suit. Please do not listen to this recording or any sleep recording whilst driving or operating heavy machinery. Please listen in a place where you can safely go to sleep. And let's begin. The Man in the Brown Suit Agatha Christie Prologue Nadina, the Russian dancer, who had taken Paris by storm, swayed to the sound of the applause, bowed and bowed again. Her narrow black eyes narrowed themselves still more. The long line of her scarlet mouth curved faintly upwards. Enthusiastic Frenchmen continued to beat the ground appreciatively as the curtain fell with a swish, hiding the red and blues and magentas of the bizarre decor. In a swirl of blue and orange draperies, the dancer left the stage. A bearded gentleman received her enthusiastically in his arms. It was the manager. Magnificent, petite, magnificent, he cried. Tonight you have surpassed yourself. He kissed her gallantly on both cheeks in a somewhat matter-of-fact manner. Madame Nadina accepted the tribute with the ease of a long habit and passed onto her dressing room where bouquets were heaped carelessly everywhere. Marvellous garments of futuristic design hung on pegs and the air was hot and sweet with the scent of the massed blossoms and the more sophisticated perfumes and essences. Jeanne, the dresser, ministered to her mistress, talking incessantly and pouring out a stream of fulsome compliments. A knock at the door interrupted the flow. Janine went to answer it and returned with a card in her hand. Madame will receive. Let me see. The dancer stretched out a languid hand and put at the side the name of the card. Count Sergius Paulovich. A sudden flicker of interest came into her eyes. I will see him. The maze peignoir, Jeanne, and quickly. And when the count comes in, you may go. Bien, madame. 
Jan bought the Peg Noir, an exquisite wisp of corn-colored chiffon and ermine. Nadina slipped into it and sat smiling to herself whilst one long white hand beat a slow tattoo on the glass of the dressing table. The Count was prompt to avail himself of the privilege according to him. A man of medium height, very slim, very elegant, very pale, extraordinary weary. In features, little to take hold of, a man difficult to recognise again if one left his mannerisms out of account. He bowed over the dancer's hand with exaggerated courtliness. Madame, this is a pleasure indeed. So much Jeanne heard before she went out closing the door behind her. Alone with her visitor, a subtle change came over Nadina's smile. Compatriots though we are, We will not speak Russian, I think, she observed, since we neither of us know a word of the language. It might be as well, agreed her guest. By common consent, they dropped into English, and nobody, now that the Count's mannerisms had dropped from him, could doubt that it was his native language. He had indeed started life as a quick change music hall artiste in London. You had a great success tonight, he remarked. I congratulate you. All the same, said the woman. I am disturbed. My position is not what it was. The suspicions aroused during the war have never died down. I am continually watched and spied upon. But no charge of espionage has ever been brought against you. Our chief laid down his plans too carefully for that. Long life to the colonel, said the cow smiling. Amazing news, is it not? that he means to retire, to retire, just like a doctor, or a butcher, or a plumber. Or any other businessman, finished Nadina. It should not surprise us that this is what the colonel has always been, an excellent man of business. He has organised crime as another might organise a boot factory without committing himself. He has planned and directed a series of stupendous coups, embracing every branch of what we might call his profession. Jewel robberies, forgeries, espionage, the latter very profitable in wartime, sabotage, discreet assassination. There is hardly anything he has not touched. Wisest of all, he knows when to stop. The game begins to be dangerous. He retires gracefully with an enormous fortune. Hmm, said the Count doubtfully. It is rather upsetting for all of us. We are at a loose end, as it were. But we are being paid off on a most generous scale. Something, some undercurrent of mockery in her tone, made the man look at her sharply. She was smiling to herself, and the quality of her smile aroused his curiosity. But he proceeded diplomatically. Yes, the colonel has always been a generous paymaster. I attribute much of his success to that, and to his invariable plan of providing a suitable scapegoat, a great brain 
undoubtedly a great brain and an apostle of the maxim. If you want to think done safely, do not do it yourself. Here we are, every one of us, incriminated up to the hilt and absolutely in his power and not one of us has anything on him. He paused almost as he was expecting her to disagree with him, but she remained silent, smiling to herself as before. Not to one of us, he mused. Still, you know, he is superstitious, the old man. Years ago, I believe he went to one of these fortune-telling people. She prophesied a lifetime of success, but declared that his downfall would be brought about through a woman. He had interested her now. She looked up eagerly. That is strange, very strange. Through a woman, you say? He smiled and shrugged his shoulders. Doubtless now he will marry some society beauty who will disperse his millions faster than he has acquired them. Nadina shook her head. No, no, that is not the way of it. Listen, my friend, tomorrow I go to London. But your contract here? I shall be away only one night, and I go incognito, like royalty. No one ever know that I have left France. And why do you think that I go? Hardly for pleasure at this time of year. January, a detestable foggy month. It must be for profit. Exactly. She rose and stood in front of him, ever graceful line of her arrogance with pride. You said just now that none of us had anything on the chief. You were wrong. I have. I, a woman, have had the wit and yes, the courage, for it needs courage to double-cross him. You remember the Tabir diamonds? Yes, I remember, at Kimberley, just before the war broke out. I had nothing to do with it, and I never heard the details. The case was hushed up for some reason, was it not? A fine haul too. A hundred thousand pounds worth of stones. Two of us worked it under the colonel's orders, of course. And it was then that I saw my chance, you see. The plan was to substitute some of the De Beer diamonds for some sample diamonds brought from South America by two young prospectors who happened to be in Kimberley at the time. Suspicion was then bound to fall on them. Very clever, interpolated the Count approvingly. The Colonel is always very clever. Well, I did my part, but I also did one thing which the Colonel had not foreseen. I kept back some of the South American stones. One or two were unique and could easily be proved never to have passed through De Beers' hands. With these diamonds in my possession, I have the whip hand of my esteemed chief. Once the two men are cleared, his part in the matter is bound to be suspected. I have said nothing all these years. I have been content to know that I have had this weapon in reserve. But now matters are different. I want my price, and it will be big. I might also say... A staggering price. Extraordinary, said the Count. And doubtless you carry these diamonds about with you everywhere? His eyes roamed gently around the disordered room. Nadina laughed softly. You need suppose nothing of the sort. I am not a fool. The diamonds are in a safe place where no one will dream of looking for them. I 
never thought you a fool, my dear lady, but may I venture to suggest that you are somewhat foolhardy. The colonel is not the type of man to take kindly to being blackmailed, you know. I am not afraid of him, she laughed. There is only one man I have ever feared, and he is dead. The man looked at her curiously. Let us hope that he will not come to life again then, he remarked lightly. What do you mean? cried the dancer sharply. The Count looked slightly surprised. I only meant that a resurrection would be awkward for you, he explained. A foolish joke. She gave a sigh of relief. Oh no, he is dead all right. Killed in the war. He was a man who once loved me. In South Africa? asked the Count. Yes, since you ask it. In South Africa. That is your native country, is it not? She nodded. Her visitor rose and reached out for his hat. Well, he remarked, you know your own business best. But if I were you, I would fear the Colonel far more than any disillusioned lover. He is a man whom it is particularly easy to underestimate. She laughed scornfully. As if I did not know him after all these years. I wonder if you do, he said softly. I very much wonder if you do. I am not a fool, and I am not alone in this. A South African mail boat docks at Southampton tomorrow. On board her is a man who has come specially from Africa at my request. And he has carried out certain orders of mine. The colonel will have not one of us to deal with, but two. Is that wise? It is necessary. You are sure of this man? A rather peculiar smile played over the dancer's face. I am quite sure of him. He is inefficient, but perfectly trustworthy, she paused, and then added in an indifferent tone of voice. As a matter of fact, he happens to be my husband. Chapter One Everybody has been at me, right and left, to write this story, from the great, represented by Lord Naseby, to the small, represented by our late maid, of all work, Emily, whom I saw when I was last in England. Law, miss, what a beautiful book, you might make out of it all, just like the pictures. I admit, I have certain qualifications for the task. I was mixed up in the affair from the very beginning. I was in the thick of it all through, and I was triumphantly in it at the death. Very fortunately too, the gaps that I cannot supply from my own knowledge are amply covered by Sir Eustace Pedler's diary, of which he has kindly begged me to make use. So here goes. Anne Bettingfield starts to narrate her adventures. I've always longed for adventures. You see, my wife had such a dreadful sameness. My father, Professor Bedingfield, was one of England's greatest living authorities on primitive man. He really was a genius. Everyone admits that. His mind dwelt in Paleolithic times, and the inconvenience of life for him was that his body inhabited the modern world. Papa did not care for modern man, even Neolithic man. He despised as a mere herder of cattle. He did not rise to enthusiasm until he reached the Mousterian period. Unfortunately, one cannot entirely dispense with modern men. 
one is forced to have some sort of truck with butchers and bakers and milkmen and greengrocers. Therefore Papa being immersed in the past, Mama having died when I was a baby. It fell to me to undertake the practical side of living. Frankly, I hate Paleothic Man. And though I typed and revised most of Papa's Neanderthal Man and his ancestors, Neanderthal men themselves fill me with loathing, and I always reflect what a fortunate circumstance it was that they became extinct in remote ages. I do not know whether Papa guessed my feelings on the subject, probably not, and in any case, he would not have been interested. The opinion of other people never interested him in the slightest degree. I think it was really a sign of his greatness. In the same way, he lived quite detached from the necessities of daily life. He ate what was put before him in an exemplary fashion, but seemed mildly pained when the question of paying for it arose. He never seemed to have any money. His celebrity, not of the kind that brought in a cash return. However, he was a fellow of almost every important society, and he had rows of letters after his name. The general public scarcely knew of his existence, and his long-learned books, through adding, signally to the sum total of human knowledge, had no attraction to the masses. Only on one occasion did he leap into the public gaze. He had read a paper before some society on the subject of the young of the chimpanzee. The young of the human race show anthropopid features, whereas the young of the chimpanzee approach nearly to the human than the adult chimpanzee does. This seems to show that whereas our ancestors were more simian than we are, the chimpanzees were of a higher type than the present species. In other words, the chimpanzee is a degenerate. The enterprising newspaper, the Daily Budget, being hard up for something spicy, immediately brought itself out with their large headlines. We are not descended from monkeys. We are descended from us. Eminent professors as chimpanzees are decadent humans. Shortly afterwards, a reporter called to see Papa and endeavoured to introduce him to write a series of popular articles on the theory. I've seldom seen Papa so angry. He turned the reporter out of the house with scant ceremony, much to my secret sorrow, as we were particularly short of money at the moment. In fact, for a moment, I meditated running after the young man and informing him that my father had changed his mind and would send the articles in question. I could easily have written them myself, and the probabilities were that Papa would never have learnt of the transaction not being a reader of the daily budget. However, I rejected this course of being too risky, so I merely put on my best hat and went sadly down to the village to interview our justly irate grocer. The reporter from the daily budget was the only young man who ever came to our house. There were times when I envied Emily, our little servant, who walked out whenever occasion offered with a large sailor to whom she fancied, in between hands, to keep her hand in, as she expressed it. She walked out with the greengrocer's young man and the chemist's assistant. I reflected sadly that I had no one to keep my hand in. All Papa's friends were aged professors, usually with long beards. It is true 
that Professor Peterson, once clasped me affectionately, said I had a neat little waist, and then tried to kiss me. The phrase alone dated him hopelessly. No self-respecting female has had a neat little waist since I was in my cradle. I yearned for adventure, for love, for romance, and I seemed condemned to an existence of drab utility. The village possessed a lending library full of tattered works of fiction, and I enjoyed perils and love-making at second hand. I went to sleep dreaming of stern, silent Rhodesians and of strong men who were always felled their opponent with a single blow. There was no one in the village who even looked as though he could fell an opponent with a single blow or with several. There was the cinema too, with the weekly episode of The Perils of Pamela. Pamela was a magnificent young woman. Nothing daunted her. She fell out of aeroplanes, adventured in submarines, climbed skyscrapers, and crept about in the underworld without turning a hair. She was not really clever. The master criminal of the underworld caught her each time, but as he seemed loath to knock her on the head in a simple way, and always doomed her to death in a sewer gas chamber, or by some new and marvellous means. The hero was always able to rescue her at the beginning of the following week's episode. I used to come out to the cinema with my head in a delirious whirl, and then I would get home and find a notice from the gas company, threatening to cut us off if the extending account was not paid. And yet, though I did not suspect it, every moment was bringing adventure nearer to me. It is possible that there are many people in the world who have never heard of the finding of an antique skull at the Broken Hill Mine in northern Rhodesia. I came down one morning to find Papa excited to the point of apoplexy. He poured out the whole story to me. You understand, Anne? There are undoubtedly certain resemblances to the Java skull, but superficial. Superficial only. No, here we have what I have always maintained, the ancestral form of the Neanderthal race. You grant that the Gibraltar skull is the most primitive of the Neanderthal skulls found? Why, the cradle of the race was in Africa. They passed to Europe. Not marmalade on kippers, Papa, I said hastily, arresting my parents' absent-minded hand. Yes, you were saying. They passed to Europe on Here he broke down with a bad fit of choking, the result of an immoderate mouthful of kipper bones. But we must start at once, he declared, as he rose to his feet at the conclusion of the meal. There is no time to be lost. We must be on the spot. There are doubtless incalculable finds to be found in the neighbourhood. I shall be interested to note whether the implements of the typical of the Mousterian period there will be remains of the primitive ox, I would say, but not of the woolly rhinoceros. Yes, a little army will be starting soon. We must get ahead of them. Will you write to Cook's today, Anne? What about money, Papa? I hinted delicately. He turned a reproachful eye upon me. Your point of view always depresses me, my child. We must not be sordid. No, no. In the course of science, one must not be sordid. I feel cooks might be sordid, Papa. Papa looked pained. My dear Anne, you will pay them in ready money. I haven't got any ready money. Papa looked thoroughly exasperated. My child, I really cannot be bothered 
with these vulgar money details. The bank. I had something from the manager yesterday saying I had £27. That was your overdraft, I fancy. Ah, I have it. Write to my publishers. I acquiesced doubtfully. Papa's books bringing in more glory than money. I like the idea of going to Rhodesia immensely. Stern, silent men, I murmured to myself in ecstasy, and something in my parents' appearance struck me as unusual. You have odd boots on, Papa, I said. Take off the brown one and put the other black one on. And don't forget your muffler, it's a very cold day. In a few minutes, Papa stalked off, correctly booted and well muffled. He returned later that evening, and to my dismay, I saw his muffler and overcoat were missing. Dear me, Anne, you are quite right. I took them off to go into the cavern. One gets so dirty there. I nodded feelingly, remembering an occasion when Papa had returned literally plastered from head to foot with rich clay. Our principal reason of settling in Little Hampsley had been the neighbourhood of Hampsley Cavern, a buried cave rich in the deposits of the Orgrind Nation culture. We had a tiny museum in the village, and the curator and Papa spent most of their days messing about underground and bringing in to light portions of the woolly rhinoceros and cave bear. Papa coughed badly all the evening, and the following morning I saw he had a temperature and sent for the doctor. Poor Papa, he never had a chance. It was double pneumonia. He died four days later. Chapter 2 Everyone was very kind to me, dazed as I was. I appreciated that I felt no overwhelming grief. Papa had never loved me. I knew that well enough. If he had, I might have loved him in return. No, there had been no love between us. But we had belonged together and I had looked after him, and had secretly admired his learning, and his uncompromising devotion to science, and it hurt me that Papa should have died, just when the interest of life was at its height for him. I should have felt happier if I could have buried him in a cave, with paintings of reindeer and flint implementations, but the force of public opinion constrained a neat tomb with marble slab in our hideous local churchyard. The vicar's consolations, though well meant, did not console me to the least. It took some time to dawn upon me that the thing I had always longed for, freedom, was at last mine. I was an orphan and practically penniless, but free. At the same time, I realised the extraordinary kindness of all these good people. The vicar did his best to persuade me that his wife was in urgent need of companion help. Our tiny local library suddenly made up his mind to have an assistant librarian. Finally, the doctor called upon me and after making various ridiculous excuses for failing to send in a proper bill, he hummed and hawed a great deal, and suddenly suggested that I should marry him. I was very much astonished. The doctor was nearer forty than thirty, and a round, tubby little man. He was not at all like the hero of the perils of Pamela, and even less like a stern, and silent Rhodesian. I reflected a minute and then asked him why he wanted to marry me. That seemed to fluster him a good deal and he murmured that a wife was a great help to a general practitioner. The position seemed even more unromantic than before and yet something in me urged towards 
Spencer's acceptance. Safety. That was what I was being offered. Safety. And a comfortable home. Thinking it over now, I believe I did the little man an injustice. He was honestly in love with me. But a mistaken delicacy prevented him from pressing his suit on those lines. Anyway, my love of romance rebelled. It's extremely kind of you, I said, but it's impossible. I could never marry a man unless I loved him madly. You don't think? No, I don't, I said firmly. He sighed. But my dear child, what do you propose to do? Have adventures and see the world are applied without the least hesitation. Miss Anne, you are very much of a child still. You don't understand. The practical difficulties? Yes, I do, Doctor. I am not a sentimental schoolgirl. I am a hard-headed mercenary shrew. You should know it if you married me. I'd wish you reconsider. I can't, I said. He sighed again. I have another proposal to make. An aunt of mine who lives in Wales is in want of a young lady to help her. How would that suit you? No, Doctor. I'm going to London. If things happen anywhere, they happen in London. I shall keep my eyes open. And you'll see. Something will turn up. You'll hear of me next in China or Timbuktu. The next visitor was Mr Fleming. Papa's London solicitor. He came down specially from town to see me. An ardent anthropologist himself. He was a great admirer of Papa's works. He was a tall, spare man with a thin face and grey hair. He rose to meet me as I entered the room and taking both my hands in his, patted them affectionately. My poor child, he said. My poor, poor child. Without conscious hypocrisy, I found myself assuming the demeanour of a bereaved orphan. He hypnotised me into it. He was a kind and fatherly, and without the least doubt he regarded me as a perfect fool of a girl left adrift to face an unkind world. From the first I felt that it was quite useless to try to convince him to the contrary. As things turned out, perhaps it was just as well I didn't. My dear child, do you think you can listen to me whilst I try and make a few things clear to you? Oh yes. Your father, as you know, was a very great man. You will appreciate him, but he was not a good man of business. I knew that quite well. It is not better than Mr Fleming, but I restrained myself from saying so, he continued. I do not suppose you can understand much of these matters. I will try to explain as clearly as I can. He explained, at an unnecessary length, the upshot seemed to be that I had left a face, life with a sum of £87, 17 shillings and 4 pence. It deemed a strangely unsatisfying amount. I waited in some trepidation for what was coming next. I feared that Mr Fleming might be sure to have an aunt in Scotland who was in want of a bright young companion. Apparently, however, he hadn't. The question is, he went on, the future. I understand you have no living relatives. I'm alone in this world, I said, and was struck in you by my likeness to a film heroine. You have friends? Everyone has been very kind to me, I said gratefully. Who would not be kind to one so young and charming, said Mr Fleming, gallantly. Well, well, my dear, we must see what can be done. He hesitated a minute and said, Supposing, how would it be if you came to us for a time? I jumped at the chance. London, the place for things to happen. It's awfully kind of you, I said. Might I really? Just while I'm looking round, I must start to learn a living on my own, you know. Yes, yes, my dear child, I quite understand. We will look round for something suitable. I felt indistinctively that Mr Fleming's ideas of something suitable 
and mine were likely to be wildly divergent, but it's certainly not the moment to air my views. That is settled then, why not return with me today? Oh thank you, but will Mrs Fleming? My wife will be delighted to welcome you. I wonder if husbands know as much about their wives as they think they do. If I had a husband, I should hate him to bring home orphans without consulting me first. We will send her a wire from the station, continued the lawyer. My few personal belongings were soon packed. I contemplated my hat sadly before putting it on. It had originally been a Mary hat, meaning by that the kind of a hat a housemaid ought to wear on her day out, but doesn't. A limp thing of black straw was a suitably depressed brim. With the inspiration of genius, I had it kicked it once, punched it twice, dented in the ground, and fixed it a thing like a cubist dream of a jazz carrot. The result had been distinctly chic. The carrot I had already removed, of course, and now I proceeded to undo the rest of my handiwork. The Mary hat resumed its former status with an additional battered appearance which made it even more depressing than formerly. I might as well look as much like the popular conception of an orphan as possible. I thought I was just a shade of nervous of Mrs. Fleming's reception, but hoped my appearance might have sufficiently disarming effect. Mr. Fleming was nervous too. I realised that as we went up the stairs of the tall house in a quiet Kensington Square. Mrs. Fleming greeted me pleasantly enough. She was a stout, pleasant woman of the good wife and mother type. She took me up to a spotless chinks-hum bedroom, hoped I had everything I needed, and then informed me that tea would be ready in about a quarter of an hour and left me to my own devices. I heard a voice slightly raised as she entered the drawing room, below on the first floor. Well, Henry, why on earth? I lost the rest, but the tone was evident, and a few minutes later another phrase floated up to me in an even more acid voice. I agree with you, she is certainly very good looking. It was really a hard life. Men will not be nice to you if you are not good looking and women will not be nice to you if you are. With a deep sigh, I proceeded to do things in my hair. I have nice hair. It is black, a real black, not dark brown, and it grows well back from my forehead down over the ears. With a ruthless hand, I dragged it upwards. As my ears are quite all right, there is no doubt about it. Ears are demoed nowadays. Like the Queen of Spain's legs in Professor Peterson's young days. When it had finished, I looked almost unbelievable, like the kind of orphan that walks out in a queue with a little bonnet and a red cloak. I noticed when I went down that Mrs. Fleming's eyes rested on my exposed ears with a quite kindly glance. Mr. Fleming seemed puzzled. I had no doubt that he was saying to himself, what has the child done to herself? On the whole, the rest of the day passed off quite well. It was settled that I had to start to look for something to do. When I went to bed, I stared earnestly at my face in the glass. Was I really good looking? Honestly, I couldn't say. I thought so. I hadn't got a straight Grecian nose or a rosebud mouth or any of the things you ought to have. It is true that a curate once told me that my eyes were like imprisoned sunshine in a dark, dark wood. But curates often know so many questions and fire them off at random. I prefer to have Irish blue eyes than dark green ones with yellow flecks. Still green is a good colour for adventuresses. I wound a black garment tightly round me, leaving my arms and shoulders bare. Then I brushed my hair and pulled it down over to my ears again. 
a lot of powder on my face so that the skin seemed even whiter than usual, I fished about until I found some old lip salve and put oceans on my lips. Then I did under my eyes with a burnt cork. Finally, I draped a red ribbon over my bare shoulders and stuck a scarlet feather in my hair and placed a cigarette in one corner of my mouth. The whole effect pleased me very much. Anna the Adventurous, I said aloud, nodding at the reflection. Anna the Adventurous, Episode 1, The House in Kensington. Girls are foolish things.